0: I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. I'm here to have conversations, real, honest, authentic conversations, the kind we aren't supposed to have anymore. I interview anyone I find interesting, from left to right, to everywhere in between. I work independently in order to have the freedom to say what I believe and speak to whoever I want. But with independence comes a lot of work and very little security i rely on donors and patrons so individuals to support my work so that i can continue to do what i do if you appreciate the kinds of conversations we're having at the same drugs please consider becoming a subscriber on patreon that's patreon.com megan murphy this is where patrons get early access to episodes exclusive access to select content, and access to weekly private live streams, where we chat about anything and everything. You can also subscribe to The Same Drugs on Substack, that's meganmurphy.substack.com, or you can support this podcast directly on anchor.fm by clicking the support button on The Same Drugs podcast page. You can also learn more about my work and donate to support it at meganmurphy.ca. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Jared Clickstein, who was an addict on Skid Row for many years before finally getting clean. He recently published an article on Public on Substack called The Secret to Ending Homelessness. Hello, Jared. Thank you so much for joining me on The Same Drugs. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Thanks for having me, Megan. So, you've had um uh I guess you could say complicated life. <laughs> um I've read sure. a little bit about you. Um can you tell me a little bit about yourself? You know, who are you? Where did you come from? How did you get here?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, my my life's been a little complicated, but um, you know, I'm grateful for the way it turned out. And, and uh, but some would say that it was a traumatic upbringing. Um, my parents were were heroin addicts, and uh, eventually started doing crack. And um, you know, th- things got pretty bad. And uh, when I was 12 years old, my aunt and uncle in Oakland adopted me. So I, I was born in Boston, and uh, in 2001, I moved to Oakland with my aunt and uncle. And, um, they sort of tried their best to give me a normal life and turn me into a normal person. And they, they did a pretty good job, but, uh, you know, I ended up, you know, abusing alcohol and, and weed and stuff in high school and, uh, eventually found myself addicted to heroin.
0: I mean, you grew up in a household with two addicts. Both of your parents were, were addicted. Um, what did that mean for you? You know, how did that shape your, your childhood and then your, your life as an adult?
1: Well, you know, but both of my parents, they, they, they liked to party and they, they were, you know, they experimented with drugs their whole lives. And then they sort of shaped up in their thirties and then they had me. So the first few years, you know, my parents weren't using hard drugs. They were, uh, pretty normal and and employed and, you know, had, had pretty normal working class lives. And, uh, everything was pretty good until I was about maybe two or three when, um, my mom was adopted and her biological brother contacted her and, uh, they actually knew each other from high school. They, they went to high school together. They they were friends in high school. Then they found out that they were brother and sister. And, uh, you know, he kind of made her way, made his way back in her life. And, uh, he moved in with us when he, when I was about two and he sort of brought heroin back into the house. So, um, my parents, their use escalated, you know, around, you know, 1993, 1994. And, uh, but so, so things dramatically changed over the years, but, uh, but I can say that I had a pretty decent foundational first three years of, of life. Um, but what it turned into was, um, you know, neglect. Basically I, I was, I was neglected, uh, a lot of questions. I, I had a lot of questions as a kid, like, you know, where are my parents? Uh, why are they acting different? Why are they fighting over seemingly nothing? I, I, I didn't, it didn't make sense to me why they were fighting, but, uh, you know, they were fighting over drugs and um, not, not to like split drugs, but my dad was getting very mad at my mom for, um, you know, diving very deep into heroin addiction very quickly. And um, my dad was more of a heroin user since he was a little kid. So he, he, he was kind of a responsible heroin user to some extent, most of his life. And uh, my my mom wasn't. So he he was emotionally very upset because he knew it it would, mess me up a good amount so um yeah things were basically just neglectful and they were pretty sleepy and uh and then when they started doing you know they, they eventually got onto methadone and um at the methadone clinic which is you know this is pretty common for most heroin addicts they uh learned how to smoke crack cuz uh people on methadone like to smoke crack so um and when when they started smoking crack when i was you know probably 7 8 This is when things get very crazy because my dad was a a drug dealer of sorts and there was a lot of cash in the house and and there there was a lot of, uh, you know, income that needed to be spent, I guess. And and they they ended up doing uh, ungodly amounts of uh, cocaine every day, you know, probably up to a thousand dollars of cocaine a day for, you know, about maybe three to four years.
0: Were they working? I mean, how did they manage to afford this habit?
1: Well, my, my dad was a union carpenter. And um, he mainta- he managed to maintain employment for, for most of this. And um, the way that they afforded it, like, like I said, he, he was a drug dealer. So sort of like a large quantity drug dealer. And um, we just had a lot of cash in the house, you know, not not millionaires, but you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash that couldn't be spent. So, when, when they developed cr- uh, crack habits, that that's where this money would go. And um, they basically had a never-ending supply of of money to you know for, for a while. And uh, my dad was a foreman cabinet maker at at a finished carpentry shop and um, a, a big uni- union shop in Boston. And uh, he went to work every day, you know, until I was twelve years old. He went he went to work every day and. Uh, you know, but by the time he got fired, he probably he probably weighed 115 pounds, you know, so so they, they were aware of, of his drug addiction. But um, he, he's a pretty good carpenter. So, so they just kind of let him keep working.
0: And sorry, you just mentioned earlier they went onto to methadone and that's what got them into crack. I didn't realize that that was a thing. Was that that that's like a common thing to go on methadone and then to start smoking crack? How does that work?
1: Well, methadone is a it's an opioid that, that's used to to get people off heroin. So. Um, and, and get on to methadone and methadone is less euphoric and it's um and it's legal so, so so every day you go in and you get the methadone and um so people get off heroin but the thing is that drug addicts they, they want to uh they want to do drugs you know so what what becomes popular at methadone clinics is uh other drugs such as uh Xanax gets really popular because if you mix Xanax and methadone it sort of equals out to like a heroin high and then also um i don't know i mean they, they, they were like i don't want to call them classy heroin addicts but they were like you know people that had jobs and a family and kept up appearances that were addicted to heroin and then when they went to the methadone clinic they started uh mixing with less desirable people i guess is what, what some people would
0: say and um you know tried crack right yeah and you wrote about the time that you started smoking heroin um in i think a piece i read on on substack and you said that you were a lot of your classmates were smoking heroin and that's why you finally tried it which i i guess i found that a bit surprising because i mean i've been around plenty of drugs in my lifetime but i've never been around people smoking heroin so i was surprised to hear that like students at your what was the university that you were going to
1: i went to uc santa cruz
0: that they were smoking heroin there were like a lot of people smoking heroin at at that university um
1: Yeah. I mean, a good amount of people were smoking heroin and, uh, I don't think that's like a normal scene at, at most universities, but unfortunately I went to UC Santa Cruz, which is, you know, a terrible place. And, um, and I lived in, uh, sort of like the art, the art dorm, you know, AKA the the drug dorm. I mean, this is the dorm that everyone was doing drugs and, uh, the, the opiate epidemic was starting to kind of fade away in terms of opioids like prescription medications because OxyContin was becoming harder to acquire. And uh, that's when the cartel kind of came in and flooded, you know, the West coast with heroin. And um, there was like cartel guys on campus, like delivering heroin. And um, you know, I, I don't really know how it started, but like someone I knew was doing heroin and was and then when you start doing heroin, you start getting addicted and you realize the way that I can pay for this is if I let other people try it and then they'll want to buy some and I'll rip them off basically. So yeah, it kind of spread through the dorm and um, I'd say the majority of my friends in that dorm tried it.
0: Interesting. And yeah. were you, uh, did you, how quickly did you become addicted?
1: Well, to be honest, I, um, was one of the last people to try it because, you know, my parents are heroin addicts. So I didn't really, uh, you know, I was scared of it. And, um, I tried it summer between freshman and sophomore year and, and, and I don't think I really did it right. I, I smoked it, but it nothing really, nothing really happened. And it was really low quality heroin that someone, you know, had cut with a bunch of shoe polish or something. And, and I, I didn't really like it, but, um, Maybe a month, month or two later, um, I got my wisdom teeth pulled, and I got prescribed uh, Percocet, and uh, I really liked that. And when I ran out, I told someone that I liked it a lot, and they they told me that they they knew where to get OxyContin. So um, I first got addicted to OxyContin, and um, I'd buy a 15 milligram pill and split it in half with my friends, and uh, feel more euphoric than I've ever felt on ecstasy or molly or anything. And I'd say within within a month or two, I was doing like 10 to 15 pills a day myself. Jeez. So it, it the the uh, the tolerance really skyrocketed. And um, but I, I will say that I, I instantly got addicted to opiates.
0: Mm-hmm. And were you still using heroin at that point? Or were you just using opiates?
1: Well, by the time I was doing 10 to 15 pills of Oxycontin a day, uh, first of all, they they were getting harder and harder to find. I was having to drive a hundred miles to get them and, uh, they were getting really expensive. So, um, someone gave me a tip that, you know, heroin's a lot cheaper and, you know, just as powerful, if not more powerful. So, um, so I'd say within a couple of months of getting addicted to Oxycontin, I start, I just switched to heroin and, uh, and smoked it every day for the, By junior, junior, senior year of college, I did it every day.
0: Were you still attending classes?
1: Yeah, I I was attending. I I was doing the bare minimum. You know, I I, fortunately I went to UC Santa Cruz, which is. um, I mean, as long as you're not majoring in like a real major, it's a joke. So, um, you know, so I majored in history and I just didn't go to class and I just wrote papers and uh, took midterms. Right. And, you know, got C's.
0: I think that you can kind of coast surprisingly easily in university, less so than some might believe.
1: <laughs> I, I found it a lot easier than high school.
0: Yeah. And yeah. I, I did, too. I mean, there's certainly there's less accountability. And I think there's there's obviously more freedom. I think that you're not really being kept track of.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and, and I mean, listen. If you're a chemistry major, I I wouldn't agree. I think that this is probably a little bit more difficult. But if you're in like the humanities, uh, you can really bullshit your way through college. <laughs> I mean, I I was on heroin and um, yeah, essentially didn't go to class and I passed. You know, yeah. most of my classes.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, I mean, around kind of being able to bullshit your way through. This is like an aside, but I did a. Yeah. I did a BA in women's studies and a master's degree in gender sexuality and women's studies. And I had like a 4.0 and, you know, I mean, I did, I did work and I was not on heroin throughout, but (laughs) I did it like reflecting back. I'm like, that was not that hard. I think when you, if you're in humanities, you can figure out how to kind of regurgitate what they want to hear and you can churn out these these papers over and over and over and over again and be reasonably successful yeah um certainly but so at what point did you become homeless you know what what was it that happened that kind of pushed you over the edge there
1: well well it happened really quick you know at at the end of senior year uh, I had a girlfriend and uh, she was addicted to heroin and, and basically like ran away like that. You know, she graduated early, went to her parents' house to get clean and, you know, just ran away from me basically. And um, but she left her car and, and I had her car key. So um, I was buying from a cartel outfit, the, the heroin, and uh, they'd always ask to hire me. So um, and she would never let me because she had the car. She wouldn't let me, you know, deliver heroin. So once she was gone, I, I started working for the cartel. And, um, and when I say working for the cartel, I'm not trying to brag. It was like a very low level, uh, you know, it was just, I was delivering heroin. That's all I was doing. And, um, but a requirement for delivering heroin and working for them was I had to snort meth before every shift because they knew that I was a heroin addict and they were scared that I'd crash my car if I was on heroin. So they'd give me meth. Um, so I'd stay awake. So I, I instantly got very addicted to meth and, um, Within like I'd say two weeks of trying meth, I, I was uh, I I completely stopped going to class and actually like you know made the decision just to drop out and um, got evicted for being insane from from where I was living and uh, was homeless in Santa Cruz within about a month of trying meth and uh, you know basically just palled around with some homeless people in Santa Cruz and didn't really know what I was doing and got taken advantage of and got you know, like punked around and um, just had no experience being homeless. So, um, so I called my uncle that lives in Los Angeles, who's my mother's brother. Uh, my mother, you know, o- overdosed on heroin. So he was he was um, he, he knew the deal and he, he wasn't going to enable me. But he told me, listen, I'll give you one chance. You come down to L.A., I'll get you into rehab. And uh, if you fail that, I'm never going to talk to you again. So I went down to LA and I got into rehab and I basically got high the whole time and got kicked out and and he kept his word. And, um, this was around occupy wall street, occupy Los Angeles. And so- someone at the rehab, you know, as I was packing my bags to leave, I said, I have nowhere to go. And they, they told me go down to skid row because they were giving out tents. And, um, that's kind of where you go when you're homeless. So, um, so I did and I just showed up and, uh, that's, that's how I became homeless. I mean, pr- pretty much within a few months of becoming homeless in Santa Cruz, I was homeless in Los Angeles on Skid Row, which is, you know, arguably probably the most intense homeless situation you can have in America. Uh, but on the contrary, probably has the best weather to be homeless in America. But, um, you know, v- very dangerous place.
0: And how long were you homeless for?
1: well I remained there for about uh I'd say six seven months um I I stayed at Occupy LA at first which was you know Skid Row adjacent and then Occupy LA got demolished and kind of uh you know it ended so I moved on to Skid Row and and you know I lived on a tent and I lived in a tent on Skid Row and uh did that for months and got in with like a crew of people and um just kind of paled around with them and that they, they were uh, Mexican f- former uh, gang members that sort of got too strung out on meth that they were sort of asked to leave the gang. So uh, they, they didn't really like me at first, but um, I had certain skills that they didn't have and they had certain skills that I didn't have. And we sort of helped each other out that they could protect me. And they kind of took me in as like an apprentice homeless person. And uh, in turn I was um, since I'm like young and white and look pretty put together. I was able to go into stores and steal anything. And uh, I could ask people for change and people at the train station would give me hundreds of, I mean, I'd make hundreds of dollars a day, just asking for for money. So um, we sort of helped each other out and, and and they taught me how to be homeless and they taught me how to survive on on skid row. And um, yeah, that's, that's how that, that's how that went.
0: So you were staying with, Occupy LA for a while. Was that kind of, I mean, the situation at these Occupy camps where it was mostly just like homeless people and addicts, and not really about the politics.
1: Well, this this is where you know my story is really interesting with my experience at Occupy LA because Occupy LA was something that I think started out genuine. I mean, it it was disgruntled millennials um, that were understandably upset. I mean, there was a a financial crisis and uh, the president bailed out the banks and he he didn't bail out the people and people were upset. And, um, you know, the job market was terrible. I mean, I remember it. I mean, I know that we're in a recession right now, but it's like, it doesn't seem like anything in comparison to 2008, 2009, 2010. So it started out like that. But the thing is, is that you can't just have like a, like a, a protest movement downtown where you're living there and not have that get eventually invaded by homeless people that, that were just drug addicts. So, um, but see, I looked like a college kid that was there for good reason, but I was actually not, I was there to do drugs and be homeless. So, um, I could blend in with, with the college kids and, um, and rob them basically. And, 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 um, and that's where I met this this group of um, the, the Mexican former gangbangers. Was um, I became tight with them, and um, we would, you know, I I could get into people's tents and steal things and g- gain people's trust, and then also I could gain trust of the Occupy movement by volunteering at the you know donation tent or volunteering at the the med tent and basically just steal everything. And um, everybody was doing this. I mean. There was a lot of drug addicts there that kind of infiltrated and just ran the place dry i mean um there was a donation tent and it's like where did all the donations go you know where where did where did everything go people were selling things i mean people would donate clothes and then end up selling it and it turned into like a i mean i it, it just it, it was a mess and um and then eventually like gangs moved in and hardcore homeless drug addicts moved in and that's when like people started getting stabbed and you know people were fighting every night all all the time and um and women were getting raped and um because women were getting raped um basically if someone didn't like someone or if someone ripped someone off you could just say like that guy raped somebody and then people would just beat the shit out out of a random stranger and uh which is obviously not worse as women getting raped but i mean but both these things are terrible it just turned into a nightmare
0: like total chaos.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Just total chaos. And, and, and the leaders of the movement were like, we like, you know, they were white kids that went to college and they'd come and hang out and pretend to be homeless for during the day. And then at night they'd go to their studio apartments that their parents paid for. And yeah. on the weekends they take their SUVs to the beach and party. <laughs> and, and I was like just homeless, you know, so I was there 24 seven. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: but I'm not trying to like insult them or anything. I, I get it. You know, they they're, it, it was back in a time when um, there was some some unity across class and there was a lot of talk about class and the ninety nine percent and the one percent and you know as corny as some of that stuff sounds i I think it's a lot better than what we're talking about now mm-hmm. you know or, or what people are talking about now. I think that's by design I think people are talking about race and gender and stuff
0: mm-hmm. because
1: that got scary you know people really kind of came together and I think uh so I think this is kind of um What's going on now but might be curated almost by the upper classes, but
0: that's well, yeah, discussion. it makes much more <laughs> sense for the rest of us to be targeting the one percent. I don't necessarily mean targeting in a violent way, but you know, trying to hold those the the very very wealthy to account, the very very wealthy, the very very greedy um, to account versus this like attacking one another over things that either don't matter that much um, in the, in the grand scheme of things, um, these sort of invented microaggressions um, and it all sort of seems a bit like a big distraction in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's not like an original take or a hot take, but you know, there was something like, and I'm not like overly political or anything, but it, it was, it was kind of cool seeing, it was like people of all races were there and it was, there was nothing about race or gender or nothing. It was just like, we're getting fucked. You know, yeah. it was like, a, and then I, it just makes so much sense that like now all these poor people are yelling at each other about race and gender. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah it's, for I don't sure. know.
1: it's it's just funny, but, uh, but I'm not, listen, I was there being a complete piece of shit and, and I wasn't, <laughs> uh, I was uh, a monster, you know, while I was there.
0: Yeah. so, Tell me like what are what are some of the other impacts or side effects of addiction that maybe aren't so obvious to people who aren't enmeshed in addiction? You know, like people think about heroin addicts and they'll be they'll they know about track marks. Um they know about the nodding off. Mm-hmm. Um but what else is going on in your life when you're enmeshed in this addiction and like yeah. impacts on health, those kinds of things.
1: Yeah. Um, well, well, opiate, you know, first of all, there, there's really no more, heroin's kind of gone. Like it's all fentanyl now, but so I, mm. I don't know a lot. I've done fentanyl, but you know, I, I really don't know a lot about fentanyl, but um, I'd assume it's similar to heroin. So, so what's going on with heroin is like, first of all, your pupils get tiny. So if you, you know that that's a big giveaway your, your pupils get tiny which does affect your vision um you can't smell anything uh mm. it's, you, you don't go to the bathroom i mean you, you pee but you don't really have bowel movements uh maybe once every two weeks and um Jeez. those are um unless you get good at i mean i figured it out sort of but like you know people go to the emergency room just because they can't shit basically when, when they're when they're doing heroin and mm. um and you have uh, zero sexual desire. Um, Mm. and I mean, zero. Um, and, uh, one thing I noticed that when my girlfriend was addicted to heroin, she stopped having her period. She didn't have her period for two years. Um, And and I don't know if that stretches across all women, but you know, in in her case that that's what happened. So, um, you basically, as uh, I read a book called junkie by William S Burroughs and he, he describes it as uh, you turn into a plant and, um, I don't really know what that means, but um you basically stop eating and wanting to have sex and you can't smell anything and um you just need heroin. That's it. So um health issues, heroin's actually not very unhealthy for you uh physically. Um most of the health issues that happen with heroin have to do with the way that you ingest heroin or the situations you get yourself into by being addicted to heroin, but heroin itself is not um, it's probably one of the more safer drugs. Um, I still would not recommend, you know, trying it or using it because, um, the dangers of addiction outweigh anything, but, um, yeah, that, that's pretty much it. And, you know, obviously, uh, hep C, uh, MRSA, you know, it it was really, uh, being homeless, I think was what caused me most of my health issues. And, um, And I have plenty. I mean, I've I've spent a lot of time in the hospital, and um, I've had multiple surgeries as a result as a result of my addiction. And um, I've cost the taxpayer a good amount of money, unfortunately.
0: Were you when you were homeless? Was it because you couldn't afford an apartment, or there were no options for you, or were you? living on the street by choice?
1: Well, I I was living on the street because I'd run out of people to take advantage of. Periodically, I would find someone, an old friend, a family member. They would let me move in and um, I'd promise them I wouldn't do drugs. I'd promise them I'd look for a job. I'd promise them I wouldn't steal anything. And, and, uh, you know, very shortly uh, after I said that I would do all three of those things. And, um, you run out of those people very quickly. And I, I ran out of them very quickly because because um, of my family history, people sort of already knew the deal. So um, that's why I was homeless. And, and and there have been times when I've gotten sober, like a sober living, saved up money, uh, gotten an apartment and uh, rent was due. And I had the money and I said, you know what? I'd rather spend this on heroin and meth and cocaine and I'll just go live in my car, you know? And then, I, and then you're in the car, and then a month later, you're selling the car to get drugs, and then now you're living outside, you know? So um, that's why I became homeless, and I think that's why a lot of drug addicts become homeless.
0: Yeah. And, you know, for most of my life, I understood, you know, like, I come from a super leftist background. Um, I identified as a socialist for most of my adult life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I no longer do, but for most of my life, I understood homelessness. And I think a lot, if not all kind of progressives and leftists understand homelessness to be a problem of, you know, lack of housing. So I always thought more social housing, more social housing, more affordable housing. Um, and only lately have I begun to learn that that might not actually be the problem and that might not actually be the solution. And of course, you know, like I came across you because I read this great piece that you wrote um, about the homelessness problem. Specifically, I think you were talking about LA and San Francisco. Yeah. And um, I mean, what, what, why is there a homelessness problem? First of all, and what could be done about it?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, it makes sense. It, it it it's it seems logical to think, okay, there's homeless people. What's the solution to this? Uh, give them a home. You know that that does seem logical. And I would say if the majority of homeless people were homeless because of sheer poverty, uh, that that would be a viable solution. But you know, I was like driving out last night, and like there's a crazy homeless guy off the off ramp. You know, swinging, he's running around in the street, swinging around a broom, trying to hit everyone's car, and it's like if you got if you give that guy a two bedroom apartment like it's not going to fix his problem you know so um he's probably going to die in that apartment or, or um you know start a fire i mean the, the, you know it's 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 uh it's not a viable solution when the main issue is drug addiction and mental health problems and a lot of these mental health problems are a direct result of drug abuse so um i mean i guess it be, i guess you in the past couple of years it's like now i'm a Uh, far right conservative for thinking like we shouldn't just give a studio apartment to every person with you know temporary schizophrenia from methamphetamine but um
0: we're all far right now i think
1: i I guess (laughs) yeah i mean i i people are going to be mad that i say that and I, i know people that um i mean i know people that legitimately will argue with me about the root causes of homelessness and the percentages of people that are homeless because of drug addiction and um haven't even been camping, let alone like slept outside on skid row and, and uh, you know, whatever, I'm not insulted about it, but it's like, I, I was there. I know what's going on. I've been to jail a lot and in jail, I'm telling you, 98% of people I've ever talked to were there because of drugs, mostly meth, some alcohol, there's, you know, DUIs and all that. And um, this is a problem. This is an epidemic. I mean, fentanyl, the, the new meth, I mean, meth is not what it was 10 years ago. It's, it's different. And um, you're not going to get anything but dead bodies inside studio apartments, you know, unless you cure these underlying problems in my opinion.
0: Yeah. I mean, so would you, do, I mean, do you think there is a homelessness problem in America? And I mean, I'm, I'm from Vancouver, so the, there's sort of a similar situation happening in Vancouver and a a similar response, I would say to the response in places like San Francisco, LA, Portland, Seattle, um, which is in my opinion, a lot of virtue signaling and sort of like the cheapest solutions that aren't really solutions. But we talk again, we talk a lot about the homelessness problem and now I'm not sure if there is a homelessness problem. So I'm curious to know what you think about that.
1: Yeah. Um, well, there, there's certainly a problem in places like San Francisco and Los Angeles. I mean, rent is very expensive. Uh, rent is very expensive in San Francisco. Um, and they're going to have their own problems because, I mean, someone's got to work at 7-Eleven. Someone's got to come clean your house. And, like, those people live 100 miles away from San Francisco right now. You know, that they, they live in um, Antioch. You know, that they, they that's a separate issue. I mean, but I agree. The rent is too damn high, as some people like to say. Um But I think that's a separate issue than what we're seeing with like literally like people that appear demonically possessed on the street, you know, dying. I I just don't think those two things relate to each other. Um, There is a drug addiction problem. There's a fentanyl problem in this country. There's a mental health problem in this country. Um, And a lot of people told, you know, they'll tell me, okay, well COVID put a lot of people out on the streets and it's like, COVID was the one time it was literally impossible to become homeless. I mean, you didn't have to pay rent for two years. It was it's it was We were getting thousands impossible.
0: of dollars a month in Canada. This yeah. thousands of dollars would being hand handed out to any individual who asked.
1: Yeah. And, and listen, people yeah. here got a thousand dollars a week for unemployment. I, I worked the whole time. So I I you know, I don't I didn't get any of that money, but um it was a time that it seems like it would be a very rare circumstance that you could actually become homeless because it was legalized to not pay rent for two years. So um, that, that argument doesn't really bode well with me. I mean, it doesn't make sense to me. And uh, if you go downtown of any major city in America, you know, it's not people, it's people that are like possessed by fentanyl and meth and talking to themselves and covered in blood. and, And it's like, doesn't that seem like the bigger issue? Like you can't just put a suit on that person and give them a job and an apartment. Um, So I think we're having a problem. That's uh, a, it's a drug problem, mostly. Obviously there's poverty, obviously it's terrible. And, um, but no, what we're seeing is, is a large scale drug epidemic.
0: So how did you overcome addiction and homelessness?
1: Well, a lot of people gave me a lot of chances and, uh, I, I, screwed all of them. And, um, I found myself back on Skid Row in about 2014, 2015. I, I spent about a year on Skid Row that time and, um, just unbelievable mayhem. Um, yeah, just horrific homelessness, uh, complete menace to society, uh, cr- criminal, c- just crimes, uh, stealing, theft, um, robbing people. Um, and. Uh, Incredible health consequences. And, and, and what eventually happened was, um, you know, I would get arrested, but I, you know, they'd hold me for a day, they'd hold me for two days. And um, finally, I was fortunate enough to get arrested for a while. Um, I got um, assault with a deadly weapon. I was defending myself from getting mugged, um, which you're, you know, you're not allowed to do that in California. Uh, if someone mugs you and you try to defend yourself, you're, you'll go to prison, apparently. And um, I didn't go to prison, but I fought a case. I fought an 18 month prison sentence. And got sent, and I got sentenced to a six month violation in LA County Jail. And um, having to be in jail for that long, I I physically withdrew from heroin and um, and cocaine. But it was really I needed to get physically off of heroin, which gave me like a shot. I mean, if you don't break the chains of physical addiction, you you don't have a shot. So um, I credit jail with doing that and a lot of things I, I learned about life in jail. I learned a lot of you know, valuable lessons, but um, I didn't learn how to stay sober. So um, when I got out of jail in 2016, I've relapsed several times since then. Uh, I, I've relapsed uh, three times. Uh, all, all three times were very short. I never got physically addicted to heroin again, but I did use drugs and destroy my life three times. So what finally got me to... Uh, take this seriously and get sober was um what i would describe as like cosmic consequences like almost like spiritual levels of of pain and suffering and uh through the form of um uh well first of all i i you know one of these one day relapses i woke up um i used a combination of meth heroin and cocaine and blacked out and uh Woke up in Chinatown, downtown Los Angeles, in someone's apartment in in a bathtub and it was full of blood. And um, I was missing part of my face. And um, I don't know what happened. I was blacked out. I must have gotten into a fight with somebody. Something happened. I irritated it myself. They ended up, you know, a lot of it was removed, it was gone, you know, and um, that was kind of the wake up call. So, you know, it, 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 something, Cause, cause w- when I'm on drugs, like everything can be taken away from me and I'll still do drugs. So something like more than just a possession had to be taken away from me. So I lost part of my face they rebuilt my face with uh, plastic surgery. I was fortunate to land at a hospital that had a plastic surgery training department. They did it for free and, um, they did a pretty damn good job and I'm, th- I'm very grateful. And, um, I got high one time, one more time and uh about eight months later or whatever and i woke up and i i was missing my toe so uh, like
0: literally your toe like out your whole toe
1: well i was missing a bone from my toe so i in a blackout had lost a bone in my toe and they had to cut my toe off at the hospital and uh i thought you know okay that's two for two i've lost body parts getting high and um and at the at the recommendation of, of someone after these uh, immense consequences I, I went to a long-term state rehab in california and um basically became open-minded that i was wrong about everything i mean everything that i had tried to get sober i just it just didn't work i was wrong i i I really just kind of like reset my whole psyche and i went to this rehab and um, where they did a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy and um, obviously 12-step stuff and um, I think the main point was that I was there for a long time. I made friends that I consider my family to this day um, and one of the most important parts I'll say is that they let me get a job at the rehab, so I was able to earn money and, and, and i'm I'm very fortunate i have I have finished carpentry skills so i got a I got a job paying twenty five dollars an hour while, while living at the rehab doing you know construction and finished carpentry which um boosted my self-esteem. I mean, I got to develop a sense of self-esteem. And when I left that rehab, I had, you know, four or five, four grand and um, went to a sober living. You know, someone gave me a clear path. Uh, I, I, I went from rehab to sober living, sharing a room with another man, you know, not the greatest living experience. And I gradually made it to renting a house with some sober friends and eventually my own apartment i mean it was a very graduated it took me years to get my own apartment and and not because i couldn't afford it but because i just didn't think it would be a healthy thing to do to live alone in an apartment and and try to stay sober but um yeah it was like an incremental way of like learning how to reintegrate into society and become a productive member of society and i was heavily incentivized to stay sober given the consequences that i experienced when i am getting high
0: in vancouver they they very recently like last week or something um decriminalized hard drugs under 2.5 grams so heroin fentanyl cocaine meth mdma um and again i've always been a person who has been in favor of decriminalizing drugs um because I suppose I thought that it was silly that people were in jail for small amounts of drugs. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm curious to know what you think about that. Do you think that's a good idea or do you think that's a bad idea?
1: Yeah. Um, I was always that kind of person too. And, and I still might be, I mean, in in a certain way, uh, because, you know, I, I lived in Portland, Oregon for a little bit, uh, recently, a couple of years ago for a job, I went up there and, um, they, they decriminalized all drugs there and um i don't think it's working overdoses are skyrocketing uh, uh, teenage overdoses are, have tripled um, mm. since 2020. um it doesn't seem to be working and the reason why i think it's not working is because we're dealing with fentanyl and fentanyl is not it, it's a whole new it's a whole new it's a game changer i mean it's just a whole new thing it, the people that are making these rules don't understand what fentanyl is and um but but regardless Um, I don't think someone should go to jail for having a small amount of drugs. Um, I think you should be able to buy drugs and go to your apartment and use them responsibly. But um, for some reason that equates to like, you're allowed to steal a thousand dollars worth of makeup from a CVS anytime you want and shit in the street and, and assault elderly people in the street. And I mean, that's not decriminalized drugs, you know, so that's decriminalized everything. Um, So if you're committing crimes to get drugs, you got you to gotta go to jail. I mean, that, that's just how... I don't know what's so conservative about that. I mean, you can't commit crimes.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it seems like the problem is actually... I mean, the problem isn't the drugs. It's that... Not that drugs aren't a problem, but the problem isn't the drugs so much as what... Everything that goes along with it, like you say, the crime and the homelessness and the people acting like psychopaths in the street, the yeah. violence, the sexual assault. I mean when you look at some of these guys who are sort of, you know, on the street and just committing crime after crime after crime and sort of in and out of jail, they don't stay there. They're put back on the street and they've got like 20 crimes on their roster. And it's like assault, sexual assault, assault, sexual assault, theft, theft, theft (laughs) over and over and over again. And it's, just it's creating such a dangerous situation, both for the people who are living out on the street, but then also for everybody. Yeah. In the public.
1: Yeah. It's not fair to the people that are committing these crimes too. I mean, it's not fair to just subject them to a life of committing crimes. I mean, and I'm not saying like, if you're on drugs, you're committing crimes, you should be arrested. And maybe not necessarily go to jail. I mean, maybe you should be committed to a long term treatment center where, you know, you can't leave, so it's kind of jail, but it's um a place where you are a factory that turns you back into a human being. Um, but you can't just, this catch and release thing is just going to end. Uh, it's almost like, a, um, it's like the strategy is like to wait for them to all kill themselves. Mm-hmm. It's like the progressive strategy. It seems at the, at the moment. Um,
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. And, um, listen, I'm not a proponent of like the drug war in the eighties. Obviously there was some, uh, there's some issues with that. Uh, And, um, you know, it was like uh, crack, you know, people were going to jail for 20 years for having crack or whatever. And, um, you know, that seems a bit ridiculous, but um, you're allowed to sell fentanyl in San Francisco right now. I mean, there's no consequence for that. Um, That's not right. I mean, I have 15 friends that have died from fentanyl since since COVID started. Um, And uh, you shouldn't just... You know that the, there was a it was called the drug game i mean it was a game you know you sold drugs you made incredible profit and you risked everything and now it's you make incredible profit people are dying and you risk nothing you know it's, it's crazy in my opinion I, I just think it's like
0: yeah i mean i know. just i think it's unbelievable that anyone would be allowed to sell fentanyl considering how many people are dying and all kinds yeah. of people, you know, people are dying on the streets, of course, people who are heavily enmeshed in addiction. But, you know, I have, you know, friends of friends who've died of fentanyl overdoses because they're, and this is happening all over the place because they're partying one night and they do a line and it does fentanyl in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's really dangerous. Um, yeah. And, you know, in places like, Vancouver, again, similar to the places that we're talking about, San Francisco, Seattle, Portland. um, What's offered is harm reduction. And I don't think harm reduction is a bad thing per se, Um, but I think that the problem is that it's just harm reduction. So as a solution, these progressive governments offer clean supply, right? You know, a safe place to do your drugs. Um, and nothing more. And, and in fact, a lot of progressives seem actively against the idea that anyone should be made to go to rehab or a mental health facility, for example.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've heard a lot of like, we can't shame people into getting, uh, sober and it's like, shame is like the only thing that like we shame people. Yeah. But yeah, well, shame works. I mean, it's the most powerful (laughs) thing in the the human psyche is shame. Um, I was shamed. I mean, I was crushed by, by uh, the universe. You know, I was um, deleted by every person that ever loved me, deleted me from their, I mean, my grandparents died asking for their, you know, where their grandson was. And my family said, we don't know who you're talking about. I mean, I was shamed into a non-existence and I'm alive today. And I, not only am I alive today, I have a, a life. I mean, I have a life, I have a career, I have friends, I have loved ones, I have uh, general uh, contentment with, with, with uh, where I am in life. So harm reduction is, is, uh, is tricky, though, because it's like, of course, we don't want to spread diseases, you know, so I support clean natal exchanges and all that. But I don't, I don't support this complete, like, it's totally okay to shoot fentanyl, like, here, do it over here, do it in here. You know, that, that's crazy. Um, this is not a drug that should be encouraged to any extent. There's no response. There's no possible way to responsibly use fentanyl. There's no possible way to rec- recreationally use fentanyl. Um, and it should not be encouraged in any way. And, and, and I will say I do support needle exchanges, but um, I smoked heroin for the first six, seven years of my, my addiction. I was living in New York city. I worked next pretty close to a methadone clinic and I noticed there was needle exchange. And I went in there never shooting heroin in my life, and uh, I told them, and I was just kind of checking it out. And I said I was thinking about um, muscling heroin, and they said, "Oh, you shouldn't do that. That's dangerous. You should directly inject into your vein." And they gave me a pamphlet on how to do it, and that—that's how I started shooting heroin. Wow. You know, and and do I blame them? I mean, no. They 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 taught me how to safely inject heroin, but it's like. I don't know that, that that's a weird that's a weird feeling like would i have ever shot heroin yeah probably i probably would have but um you know i walked into a needle exchange and, and walked out with a bag of needles never having shot heroin in my life um so i support harm reduction as long as as long as the only the only encouragement and incentivization that that exists in that world is incentivizing you to go to treatment go to detox i want Way more funds going to that sort of thing than what's going to harm reduction. I mean, I know people that work in harm reduction, making $30 an hour, ha- handing out tinfoil to fentanyl addicts. I mean, that's insane. I used to have to go into the garbage can, find a half-eaten burrito, unwrap the tinfoil, wash off the oil, and use that to s- smoke heroin. I mean, these people are getting fentanyl delivered. I mean, uh, getting tinfoil delivered to them. It's, um, it, it, it creates a, a sense of it's okay. What I'm, what I'm doing is okay it's state sanctioned basically. And, um, that's not good. I don't think that's good.
0: Yeah. And it seems. I mean, it it seems like there's a lot of people who are making their living off of that industry as it were, you know, like a lot of people, as you say, have really, really good, really well-paying jobs working in that whole kind of harm reduction industrial complex in Vancouver. I heard people call it the downtown Eastside industrial complex. Yeah. Um, and that's troubling as well. You know, you don't want to think about people wanting to maintain that kind of really horrific, awful, dangerous, depressing, depressing, depressing situation. Yeah. Um, because their jobs depend on it um, because they're making yeah. money off of it.
1: Well, it's kind of the nature of nonprofits in general. Um, you know, it's like it's, it's fixing the problem gets rid of your, uh, what do you call it, your pool of money. I mean, there's just so much money. And it's, you know, what so much money is going into this. Um, you know, San Francisco has a $1.2 billion budget for homelessness. It's like if it was really housing, like you could buy an $80,000 Airstream what's that 100 that's how many that's a hundred and that's eight that's like a hundred and twenty thousand units you could house every homeless person in, in, in california you know so where is this 1.2 billion dollars going you know is it going to it's like a slush fund and, and it's like I, I you know it's clearly not getting better i mean homelessness in these cities like the, the cities that you've named it's only gotten worse you know um and the amount of people that are dying has gone. I mean, I think in the year 2000, between 10 and 20,000 people overdosed in America on drugs, it's like 110,000 a year now. So um, I don't know. There's just these big slush funds and people are getting paid and nothing's getting better.
0: What do you think are some of the most common misunderstandings about addiction?
1: Well, people are, you know, I I understand the sentiment of like, you're a victim. You know, am I a victim? I guess. I mean, am I a victim to Purdue Pharma? Am I a victim to the pharmaceutical industry that pumped the streets full of opioids? Sure. But being a victim doesn't mean you can just be a piece of shit. You know, it's like, sure, in some way you were victimized, taken advantage of, but it's time to fix your shit you know, it's time to not, it's time to not be a complete drain on society and have some responsibility for yourself. Um, so I'd say that's a, that's kind of a misunderstanding about addiction in that, um, well, it's really just a misunderstanding about life. I mean, if someone's a victim, it, you help them, you help them up. And it, it, like, if you can't help them up, you got to help them down sometimes. I mean, I, I, especially with the drug addict. So that, that, that's a big thing about addiction. Um, you can help people up but if if they won't take it you got to help them down you know that, that's how you help somebody that's how you really save somebody uh which is a nasty thing to some people to think about but um you cannot enable terrible behavior or you're just going to get more terrible behavior uh i mean what one thing is like meth meth is very different um, meth is um, is a drug that really takes over your brain and um something like heroin is uh you'll risk your life to get heroin whereas if you're on meth you'll just risk your life i mean for hallucinations i mean meth is what we're seeing in these cities with these people screaming and in temporary psychosis and temporary schizophrenia that this is meth i mean this is the new meth and um it's incredibly uh it's incredibly dangerous and I'd say responsible for a lot of madness that we're seeing.
0: So what, you know, if you were in charge, <laughs> yeah, what would you suggest as a solution? Some, some solutions to this problem of homelessness, addiction, crime, that's getting so out of control in these cities.
1: Yeah. Um, well, it's going to take a lot of money, but uh, we seem to have we seem to be a pretty wealthy nation, and we seem to be you know uh, you know paying for regime change every four years in a new country. So if we maybe we just don't do that you know for the next five years, we could have enough money to fix this problem. Um, I think we should ban camping. I think we should ban camping, uh, urban camping in, in city centers. Yeah. And, um, but that doesn't mean put you in jail. I mean, we get you, we have to invest a lot of money into this. I mean, we have to have, we have to build centers, you know, shelters. We have to build shelters with thousands of beds. We need to build separate buildings that are detoxes. So once we get you in, you're homeless. We bring you in. We have to determine why are you homeless? Is it just poverty? If it's just simply poverty, you have kids, you lost your job. Okay. We'll get you a studio apartment. But for the vast majority of people where it's just drug addiction or mental health issues, that's where we break you off. And it's like, are you addicted to drugs? You're going to detox. You're going to state detox. Are you just crazy? You're going to, we have to open up psych hospitals. I mean, this is, we can't just let these people, you know, die outside. It's going to be more expensive. I mean, just on a financial level, it's going to be more expensive to let them die outside and continually go to the emergency room every week than just to house them in a psychiatric hospital. So, um, We got to detox the people off drugs and then we have to mandate if you were committing a crime or you were camping outside or you were being a menace to society like I was, you're mandated one to two years of treatment where you go to drug treatment and um, in these treatment centers, you would be, you know, have a therapist do cognitive behavioral therapy, probably do some, not here to advocate for 12 step work, but I, you know, probably be some 12 step work in there. And uh, more importantly, we, we assess your skills. I mean, are you a young kid that just got strung out on fentanyl, but you like, you, you have a tendency to learn how to do computer-related things? Maybe we'll teach you how to code. Or if you're more prone to doing something like uh, you know, welding or carpentry or electrical work, I mean, we can train you to do that so that way that when you get out, you're not leaving to go get a job at 7-Eleven. You're leaving with like a good-paying job. or or the ability to get a good paying job. And maybe we make deals with the unions we feed people into unions. I mean, Biden just passed this infrastructure bill. I don't know who's going to build the bridges and the highways that in this alleged infrastructure bill, maybe it could be these drug addicts, these reformed drug addicts. So um, a big deal about this is if you're mandated a one year of treatment and you stay sober for a year, uh, 85% of relapses happen within the first year. So if we just get you beyond that one year, the, the number of relapses significantly dropped. And then you have a whole community of people that you got sober with at, the, at one of these facilities and you have a family for the rest of your life or until your family, your family comes back into your life. I mean, a lot of this is about connection. It's about love and connection, but a lot of us have lost our families. So when you're in this treatment facility, getting sober with other people, you create a family and um, yeah, basically I would call them factories that turn you back into a human being. And is it going to have a hundred percent success rate? No. Is it going to have a 50% success rate? Probably not, you know, but it's better than just letting people die in the street and, and not only ruin society for all of us, but the worst of all, it's, we're we're letting, it's ruining their lives. I mean, that's no way to live, live in the gutter doing fentanyl. It's, it's no way to live. Yeah. You
0: know? So as I understand it, you're working on a book. Yes. You're, uh, I'm, I love yeah. your writing. Um, oh, thank you so much. I'm curious. Actually, Like, how long have you been writing for?
1: Well, I started writing the book right after my uh, accident with my face um, because I was getting surgeries and living with uh, a sober person and um, had a lot of time on my hands. So I, I, she let me borrow a laptop and I started writing. Um, so that was probably, I think that was five, I've been sober for four and a half years. So that was probably five years ago mm-hmm. that, that I started writing. And, and listen, I finished the book and I've been um, gaining some traction. And obviously it's, it's not just writing a book, it's getting a book published. You know, that's part of it. But um, you know, it, it is a memoir about my childhood and my times being homeless and uh, and then getting sober, but it's also a book about solutions and just my experience with what didn't work and to, and then finally what did work. And, um, you know, it's, it's critical of, of, uh, I guess it's, it's, it's pretty critical of, of some progressive policies right now. Uh, not to say that I'm some kind of far right person or anything, but it's just, I I think the progressive policies when dealing with homelessness and addiction are not working uh, at all. So, um, it's a bit of a memoir slash, you know, book about addiction and solutions to homelessness.
0: So you're currently looking for a publisher.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm in, I've talked to a few and uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, I'm gaining momentum. Um, I'm going to, I've been writing some articles, so hopefully things just build out from there. But um, I don't know. It's like, listen, I get it. Publishers are not like it's 2023. There's not, money isn't flowing they don't want to publish a memoir of a nobody you know it's like i understand you know but i think it's a pretty topical issue right
0: now oh Um, yeah um, absolutely absolutely yeah and i think and again i think your writing is great and i'm I'm sure you'll find a publisher Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. But publishers yeah. are like, how many
1: followers do you have? And it's like, what do you mean? I mean, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, what does that have to do with my, but I get it. I mean, it seems
0: unfair, but yeah, it's the way the world yeah. works now. And it's, it's yeah. unfortunate, but it's just the reality. It's just high, yeah. yeah. It's the same thing with, you know, trying to publish articles for any platform. I mean, nobody really wants to bother publish somebody, publishing somebody who has like 20 followers on Twitter. It's just not worth it for them. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, well,
1: I'm, I'm growing, you know, I went on. Yeah. Oh yeah. I got, 60 more followers. So.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, You'll get there. Yeah. It, and you and you started a Substack recently. Where can we find you on Substack? Uh
1: my Substack is just Jared Clickstein. You know, search Jared Clickstein Substack. I I wrote an article for Michael Schellenberger's Substack, which is um, he Public? runs a, a joint uh Substack with Layton Woodhouse. They started a a Substack called Public. So you can find my article there. Yeah. Um my Substack is just Jared Clickstein. I've released some excerpts of chapters and stuff of my book and uh, plan on releasing more articles and, um, yeah, we'll see where it goes from here.
0: Awesome. Well, I really enjoyed talking to you and so glad to connect with you. I'm glad that Michael posted that article and that I was able to find you through that. And I, I hope that we can stay in touch and I wish you all the best.
1: Thank you so much, Megan. I had a great time talking to you and, uh, just grateful that you have me on. And if anyone wants to follow me, it's at, I'm at Metagriff on Twitter and uh, I'll have updates there. So thank you so much.
0: Perfect. And I'll be sure to post all your links in the show notes below when I put this up on YouTube. So I'll post your Twitter and your Substack and all that there. Okay. Thank you so much. Okay. Awesome. Thanks again. Have a great night. Okay. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs, Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy. This allows you access to special content, early access to episodes, and weekly private live streams. You can also follow and support my work on Substack. That's meganmurphy.substack.com, or you can support this podcast directly on Inker.fm. By clicking the support button on the Same Drugs podcast page, you can also donate via PayPal at paypalme Drugs. I produce and host this podcast all by myself and rely entirely on individual donors to sustain my work. This is all me and you, the listener. You can donate any amount you like from $5 a month to 20 to 100 or more or less. It all counts. Thank you so much for supporting conversations outside the algorithm.